I was at a poker game and I said, Hey guys, I got to wrap it. It was like midnight. I got to wrap it up. We're going to church tomorrow. That's all the person next to me needed to hear. And she launched into this. Why do all you people and Trump this and Trump that I'm like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. slow your roll there, lady. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a Trump fan. Number one, just because I happen to go to church, I understand why you would make that mistake. It's an example of like having no understanding of people that they never come in contact with. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Corey Nathan, host of the podcast Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Corey is staking out a unique perspective as something of a never-Trump Republican and with a strong interest in religion. He's getting very good guests, and he's interested in protecting our democracy and in maintaining reasonable conversation during this time of polarization. His recent show has both Mike Madrid and Joe Trippi together, consultants from different sides of the aisle. We talked about how Corey came to be a podcaster, coming from little background in politics. It's a good story. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Corey Nathan, talking politics and religion without killing each other. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Corey, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. Some folks just know me as the Jew from Jersey who became a Christian. <laughs> so that's my my religious background. I did grow up in an observant Jewish family. We went to an Orthodox synagogue and something unique happened in my late 20s. I became a born again, Bible thumping Christian. Uh, so that's on the personal side. Vocationally, I'm a small business guy. I started a business that is uh, the the polite term for it is executive search and small scale mergers and acquisitions. Uh, but I'm perfectly comfortable if folks want to refer to me as a headhunter. Uh, but I've that uh, practice has specialized in the entertainment industry, in particular the entertainment advertising industry. So I'm known within the world of coming attract. The, the, there's an industry within the industry that makes all the coming attractions and movie posters and. I have quite a niche, uh, again, doing headhunting and some small-scale mergers and acquisitions there. And over the years, I've started and invested in some other small businesses. So vocationally, that's what I've been doing my adult life. Maybe I'll grow up someday. <laughs> Happily married and three kids. And today is my middle kid's birthday. He's 19 today. And uh, we have a 17-year-old uh, as well. So, uh, and, and anything else... Uh, there are some rumors about my exploits in the Texas Hold'em poker world, but I'll neither confirm nor deny those reports. <laughs> well, I was told by a 
friend who's a big time reporter the other day that I need to find a way to break news when I do a podcast, which I had never aimed for in the slightest. I was interested in hearing people's story and what they do. And I never imagined that someone would come for fresh, fresh news. But now that I don't get your Texas Hold'em news, I'm not sure we're getting off to the right start. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think you should tell me just let's what's going on with you in poker. Just out with it. Let's, let's break this news right here, right now. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer that the way that only a, a degenerate could answer is it's not gambling. It's measured risk taking. <laughs> uh, let's see what are you supposed to play tight aggressive yeah, tight aggressive is a good way to play but it really it depends i mean the the prop if if we really want to talk about this the proper to answer to any poker question is it depends because there's so many different factors at the table you know wh what is the rest of the table playing like if the rest of the table is super super tight then you you want to loosen up you want to play more sets of hands it just depends. It depends. It depends if if I'm playing at higher stakes and there's half a table that I know is better, more experienced than me, playing more hands than I do, then I want to depend on quality cards as opposed to being able to outplay the other players at the table. So yeah, I, we could go on forever on this, but any proper poker answer starts with, it depends. <laughs> I'm going to just draw a lot of conclusions about you and Texas and poker from that. One thing I know about you, since you have a podcast called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, is that I can ask you some questions about politics and religion and not fear for my life. So I'm going to do that. Good. I have to admit, I think, that when you said you're a Jew from Jersey who became a born-again Christian, that I felt some prejudice against that. Here's why. I grew up Jewish, Jewish and not practicing, which is not something that you then have to rebel against. Perhaps the Orthodox version requires from some people uh, rebelling. And I'm, and I'm an atheist. I have little interest in the mythology of either Judaism or Christianity beyond their value in understanding history and understanding other people. So for you to go from one ancient tribe to a slightly less ancient one as a believer, I find that just personally quite puzzling. It doesn't jibe with just where I come from in the world, which is just very secular. Can you talk a little bit about where you were when you were Jewish and what changed and what you find of interest in a different monotheistic belief? Yeah. So I have always taken the theological questions very seriously, even as a relatively young boy. I remember being in the Yom Kippur service and I forget if it's the Neela service, but part of one of the services in the afternoon, so you're well into your fast, uh, it recounts Solomon's Ecclesiastes. Man comes from dust and ends in dust. 
And even just hearing that, reading that, praying through that service, before I was even bar mitzvahed, I remember grappling with these big issues. Where did we come from? What's wrong with God's creation? Where is this all going? What part am I playing in it? The big existential questions. They've always been present in my mind and I, I've grappled with them. As a Jew, and I still identify as a Jew, there were other aspects of it. Some folks believe in God, right? And it's important to believe in God and have a picture of, you know, the long haired, you know, white man in the sky. Like I, God was always bigger than that to me. The concept of God was always bigger than that to me. But that's a whole other conversation. And frankly, I have family members who, uh, there's part of my family that left Russia or is actually Ukraine. Wait, where? Where in uh, Ukraine? Uh, in Ukraine. So it's... Um, my, on my dad's side, we're also from Jewish from Ukraine. Yeah. It's interesting, just if we're going to explore that side note, that I thought of my grandmother as being from Russia, but it was really part of the Russian empire. Now we've done some history work and we've, my family there, the Krivals and the Blicks or the Blechs, um, there for at least 150 years prior, because we're going by when certain groups of Jews emigrated northward and others were placed there by Catherine the Great. So, and I know certain specific people in my family line and what they did. One was a mayor of the town. The other owned a mill, very prosperous people there. Part of my family left Russia or Ukraine, I, I guess you should say, after the pogroms just became too much. And then one or two family members found their way to the United States and the rest of the family came here and finally landed here. My great-grandmother and my grandmother, I was named after my great-grandmother, landed here March 3rd, 1921. But the, the reason that they left is because if it wasn't the Cossacks, it was the Tsarists. If it wasn't the Tsarists, it was the Bolsheviks. But one thing they all had in common was they all hated the Jews. And a lot of these guys, the Bolsheviks not included, a lot of these guys were wearing crosses on their chests. Now, another part of my family was from Germany. The Mertics were from Poland. Part of the Kleinfelds were from Romania. And the, the folks who didn't leave that area uh, when my great-grandparents left ended up being eviscerated in the Holocaust, whatever the actual religion of those soldiers were. They did have crosses on their chest and they did have the institutional German church. Bonhoeffer was the exception to the rule. So I, I bring this up to say, I understand your, I don't know if it's a reticence or a resistance to the fact that I became a Christian, but I think there's something in our cultural DNA where we're at the very least allergic to this whole Christian thing. This is where my head was. I wasn't just a casual Jew. I wasn't trying to rebel against my Jewishness or my Jewish identity. I embraced it and I still embrace it. I still uh, make a big point of doing Seder and uh, observing the holidays to the extent that it doesn't come in conflict with my current theological positions. And also to say that I understand why there's an allergy to that as a Jew to this uh, Christian thing. My Christianity is more of a set of theological convictions that resonated with me on a spiritual level, on an intellectual level, even an emotional level. We could get into that if you like, but I, I hope that sort of answers what you were curious about. 
Well, I, it does uh, help me get to know you a little bit better. I, I don't think there's much you could say that would really help me understand the attraction to believing in the big guy in the sky. I'm not really interested in that, to be frank. I mean, I, I have plenty of friends who I love and honor who, who have that kind of beliefs, but to me, they're antique and not useful. And I'm much more interested in evolution and biology and getting along with people without regard to to that kind of mythology, but it's fine. It's a big country and we, we need to get along with each other and allow people to have the kinds of views and religions and lack of religions that we're made up of. So, um, can I, can I respond to that for yeah, a second? Sure, sure. So I had a great conversation or great set of conversations with a guy named Jonathan Rausch recently. I've, I've had him on my show as well. Oh, he's the best. Yeah. He's, I, I just, I love Jonathan. We talked about this because he grew up also in a secular Jewish family, but is a, I don't know if you could say a devout atheist, but he's an atheist. So I, I love where he's going with his thought process. He may very well write a book about this, that he understands that, or he challenged me because he said, I have a problem to put it simply with murder and magic. And what he means by that is the big question of, well, if there's a God, how can we explain children with cancer or terrible things that happen in, in God's creation? He says, I also have a problem with magic, by which he means miracles. Religious people supposedly believe in unnatural things that happen in, in creation and that we go ahead and explain by God. Now, I have a response to that, but... That, that's not important, but I appreciate that he is distilling down what my central problems are philosophically. What's the word? Uh, he, he's doing the project of how we know things. What's the word for it that I'm looking? How do we know things? What's that science? The science of epistemology. Epistemology. epistemology that's it. Epistemology. Yeah. Yep. So, so epistemological problems, right? The... But the problem that he is grappling with, there are two big ones, uh, but the, the, the main one that I'd want to push back on is morality. That at a certain point, and I, I've read Dawkins and I've read Hitchens and I, I've, I mean, Bertrand Russell, I find very compelling and very persuasive. And especially with somebody like Dawkins, who I don't feel find nearly as persuasive, I just don't find his argument for biological ethics or biologically evolved ethics to be sufficient. At a certain point, morality doesn't have any foundation outside of something authoritative, something, um, something bigger magical. than ourselves. Something magical. Well, that's one way to put it. I, I wouldn't say magical. I think another problem with it, if you know, my response to that would be that, and I would say this to Jonathan too, uh, he's articulating a version of those who believe in God more by its abuses, more by religion's abuses than by more in-depth, uh, more nuanced understandings of what I would call an understanding of an open universe. My conversation with him or with you wouldn't start with, well, there is a God and I know him and this is, and you have to believe that's useless to me. 
what would be fruitful, I think, is to explore the philosophical question of, do you believe in an entirely closed universe within which nothing else exists and nothing outside of this closed universe's order of things or processes happen? Or do you believe in an open universe? The open universe theory, uh, some versions of it might be the multiverse or what have you. I tend to believe in an open universe, that this isn't it. You know, what we're experiencing in the physical materialistic world is not it. There's something else there. So that, that, that's where the crux of my conversation would be. I don't know how I could connect in any reasonable number of steps a theory of an open universe with a guy on a cross dying for the sins that's a heck of a jump there. Maybe a run across a field and up on a mountain and down the other side. And, you know, like there's just absolutely nothing there that I can grasp that I can imagine, like using logic and reason. I don't know. You're, you're at the heart of it, man. So I am not going to sit here and pretend that I could convince you, certainly not in one conversation, to get from open universe to part of the Red Sea and seven literal 24 hours, which, by the way, like it isn't really my, my faith doesn't depend on seven literal 24 hour days. And <laughs> in any case, like I, I think this is a very good preamble to understanding who you are and why you decided to start this podcast, which I wanted to ask you about. It seems to me that you have multiple podcasts that you're part of. What's the founding story of you getting into this medium and what are the different uh, things that you've been part of? Sure. That, so there's a combination of ingredients. The beginning of my adult life, I started out as a stockbroker during the day and I was going to a theater conservatory at night. Um, and that was when I was two, 19. Two rather different things. Very, very different things. They were two very different worlds. Very much like, you know, my life going to church and being part of Bible studies compared to my life being involved in the entertainment industry. So I've always had one foot in two very different worlds, theologically, politically, uh, vocationally. And I've been, sometimes I felt like a, an alien uh, within those worlds each of the uh, respective worlds that I was a part of. But sometimes I felt like I was the, the only guy who could translate, you know, for my friends at church, I was the only guy who could translate and say, Hey, your, your concept of the left is really an overgeneralization, a mischaracterization. And that's leading you to vilify people that you never deign to even have a conversation with, let alone really understand. Same thing with my friends in the entertainment industry where, you know, they hear I'm going to church. <laughs> I was at a poker game and I said, hey, guys, I got to wrap it. It was like midnight. I got to wrap it up. We're going to church tomorrow. That's all the person next to me needed to hear. And she launched into this. Why do all you people and Trump this and Trump that? I'm like, whoa, 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 slow your roll there, lady. You know, I'm not a I'm not a Trump fan, number one. Just because I happen to go to church, I understand why you would make that mistake. It's an example of like having no understanding of people that they never come in contact with. So, we have a lot of that going on right now. Yeah. It's not It's not healthy. Yeah. I bring it up because um, I have a background in producing theater, producing some independent film. And when I heard my first podcast, I just fell in love with the medium. I knew right away that I wanted to produce something. When was that, would you say? Uh, about three and a half years ago, four years ago. I'm, a, I'm not an Apple guy. So I, I, 
<laughs> I have a Samsung, you know, and as soon as I could figure out what app to get on there, how to listen to a podcast, I forget if it was like a Mark Marin one or a Joe Rogan one, but I listened to it and I'm like, two really interesting people having this two hour conversation, just letting it flow. It's such a wonderful medium. And I immediately began to develop concepts for programs that I thought would lend itself uniquely to this medium, how to really use the medium for all it can be. So we started producing something. Within six months, we, we were producing a, a show about the history of the entertainment advertising industry. So telling the story about you know the movie poster for Jaws and the first coming attraction for uh, Star Wars. And, and that was a fun, fun show to do. In fact, the, producer, the exec producer just contacted me. We did a two-year run of that. And uh, he wants to pick it back up. Uh, so that was, that, that was a fun project. But this one, talk politics and religion without killing each other, that's the center of it for me. Like it, I, as I began to listen to more and more podcasts, I find the work that people at the dispatch and the bulwark and politicology. And at that time, uh, Lincoln project is, I think the Lincoln project is still doing some good work in this medium. I just thought that they're doing such important work to have independent media outlets that are doing something different than what we've come to expect in broadcast media or the loudest, most dominant voices in our culture today. And I, I wanted to be a part of it. I heard about you because I joined this group called the Democracy Group of Podcasts. Oh, they're and, great. Yeah. And how did you become a part of that? How did, did they come to you? Did they recruit you? What was, what's the story there? So for the record, I'm not a member yet, which, ah. which speaks well of the democracy group. It speaks well of, of them. I forget if it was a democracy group or the group that's producing out of Penn State. They are out of Penn State. Yeah. Yeah. So I found them through Tink Media Swap Database. And I just was familiarizing myself with a great resource, by the way. I assumed that you were introduced to me by them. Village Square, you you had on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So I've become really, really friendly with Liz and with Vanessa. Uh, but it, it basically, one introduction opened the door to the democracy group. And then there's a few different programs in there, a few different members of the group that I'm just really, I believe in what the group is all about. I believe in the individual programs, the people that I've gotten to know, and we've collaborated in any number of different ways. I find it really encouraging. I find it to be like counter-programming to, again, to what's dominated our political discourse, especially folks like Vanessa and Liz at, at uh, Village Square. They're, they're really doing it. They're really striking at the heart of some of what's wrong with our culture. They're like the salve for it. I, I love what they're doing. So yeah, we've shared promos. They've been a guest on mine. They did a, a feed drop of, of one of our shows on their, pro, on their feed. So uh, it's been great getting to getting to know them and collaborate with them. Where did the name come from? It's different than the subject of mine, although we have overlap in some of the guests and some of the ideas. It's rare that the name of something tells so much about it. I think it must be a great advantage in obtaining guests, for example, to have such clarity right away in what you must be about. Where did the name come from and does it fairly capture what you're up to? It does. It does. And that's why it's a long name. So sometimes it's inconvenient. 
And I made the mistake of doing the apostrophe after about after the talking, the apostrophe after the killing instead of the G. So I, it takes a lot of explaining to help people find it. So that's the downside. The upside, though, is more important. It's exactly what we do. It's exactly what our objective and our mission is all about. So it's right in the title. In fact, early on, I was still ambivalent about the title. We came to it because we were just brainstorming. Like, what is it? What do we want to do? What's our mission? Like, what's different about us? And how should we just distill this title? And we kept on coming back to talking about talking, you know, just what is it? Politics and religion. But what about politics? Politics and religion without killing each other. So just the idea uh, was summarized in what became the titles. And then early on, one of our first high profile guests was a great person named Julie Mason. She has a show on XM radio. She loves journalism. She's, she was a great journalist herself, a press pool person. Um, and uh, I asked her after she came on, I said, you know, we're thinking about changing our title to something different, like the purple district or something like that. And she said, no, keep your title. It's great because it's a little bit different because I, don't usually talk about religion. I love it because it's counter You know, she gave me great feedback about it. She said, yeah, it's a little long, but it tells people exactly who you are. So it, from there on, it just stuck. You have several times said we, and my understanding is you have a co-host, Ronnie. Is that your wife? Is that, who is that? <laughs> no. So my dad is Ronnie. Ah. He, he was the first co-host. He was actually the first guest technically because we told the story about how the Jew from Jersey became a Christian and my dad was a big part of it. And is your dad because, a Christian? No. No? no. no, no, no. He's becoming more and more observant. Yeah. Uh, he wears a yarmulke. He dobbins three times a day. He's hardcore. It was tough for him to have you leave the fold. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. That was 20 something years ago. And in some ways that's what led to this program because we had to figure out, he initially thought about sitting Shiva for me, which is for folks who don't know, that's the ritual you go through when somebody in your immediate family dies. God. So, <laughs> so he, he didn't ultimately, because he wanted to convince me all the reasons. How, how serious it was yeah, and well, how heartbreaking probably for him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He sent me a 10 page single spaced letter about a month after I told him wow. outlining all of the reasons, emotional reasons, family reasons, religious reasons, political reasons, logical reasons. And that in some ways was the beginning of our program, Talk Politics and Religion, Not Killing Show, because it covered everything. So my father was the first co-host and I've had Jessica on. She's a great journalist herself. She was a co-host for you know, about a year for a lot of our interviews. I have a great producer, Emily Matthews. She's been a part of it since about a year ago. And uh, yeah, it's just been a great collaboration. I've had other guest co-hosts of late of the last six months. I've been doing solo hosting, which is fun, but I, I like, I like collaborating. I like how it evolves and going with the flow. <laughs> the real star, I should say, the real star of our program isn't me. It's not, it's not the, any of the co-hosts. It's not the producer. It's the, it's the guests. I'm so proud and so grateful of all the different and the diversity of guests that we've had. So that's really the star of the program. That's what I'm most proud of. You have a great list of guests from what I've seen. I didn't know all of them, but I knew a lot of them. Is your podcast a business for you? Is it a money loser? Does it bring in money? What's the nature of it as a as an enterprise. Yeah, no, I'm hoping to build on on what we've done so far. 
I'm fortunate in that I have other business interests that are helping me pay the mortgage and everything else. I don't have to make a ton of money doing this thing, but we're making a little bit of money. My goal is, is partly to grow the audience so that we can monetize it that much more because I think at this stage of my life and my career, I really want to marry my vocational efforts with my avocational endeavors. I spend more time doing this thing than any, any of my other endeavors. I'm having conversations now where the podcast is leading to other possibilities. I'm in conversations now without jinxing myself, if you will, where folks are interested in all the other things that it takes to do a podcast. Because as you know, to do this well, you can't just show up, hit record and you know think you're going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. It takes preparation. It takes inviting interesting guests. It takes you know doing some follow-up. It takes a little bit of post-production. It takes a lot. You know, so folks are much less trying to figure out how to get someone to listen to it. (laughs) Well, that too. I mean, that's another thing I'm proud of. Like we listen, we don't have an audience in the millions or even the hundreds of thousands, but I'm really proud of the fact that I'm a nobody in the world of politics and religion. I don't have a PhD in theology. I, I don't have a degree in journalism. I didn't work at the Washington Post or anything like that. I came from nowhere, nowhere. And the fact that Julie Mason and Charlie Sykes and Bill Crystal and Governor Christine Todd Whitman and so just great, brilliant people were willing to spend a, a little bit of time with me and, and have an interesting conversation about important issues. So I think that's the, the astonishing thing that's going on in the world of podcasting is, well, first of all, there's just uncountable numbers of podcasts. There's something for everybody, but there is really the opportunity to create something that you want and somehow to find people who are substantial in some way to talk to you. It's happening like in every realm right now. There's a podcast on absolutely every subject. In fact, there's dozens and there's somebody intelligent finding really good guests in any area that you're interested in. I listen to disc golf podcasts. That has got to be the most arcane, you know, it's a sport that very few people play or follow, but I follow it. I can hear the gossip and I can hear the professional disc golf players and the course designers. It's free information on any subject and you have found your niche and you're clearly enjoying it and you found enviable people to talk to. Tell me about like the beginning and getting this thing going. Like before you had landed anybody, what were you doing to do it? What were you doing to get it off the ground? So I had already produced another couple of podcasts. I was, so I was familiar with the medium and we were in the pandemic. So I had to switch gears from having like a professional studio where we were recording and other folks that were contributing by editing. I had to switch gears from that to figuring out how to do everything myself, to figure out, hey, can we get a quality recording from Zoom or Zencaster? I had to learn a new trade. I had developed a certain style guide, if you will, in terms of editorial, but I had done all those things. I had you know a year and a half, two years under my belt in the medium and understood what I wanted to thing to sound like. And I, w- I also knew that if I had nothing else, I had some passion. I was 
very well read on this intersection of topics. And I just thought, listen, if we start by having interesting conversations with interesting people across our differences, different religious backgrounds, different theological, you know, you're atheist. My, my dad at one time would have considered himself an agnostic. I brought friends on initially just to get the conversation going and get the general structure going. And the first month and a half, two months we did it. And then I just started reaching out to people that I'd heard on other podcasts. So I also know a couple people that are just really brilliant professors. So I reached out to a friend of mine, a good buddy of mine, who is a New Testament specialist, and he's considered an ethicist. He's a professor at Fuller. He came on the program. Someone I really respect from Duke Divinity School came on the program. And they both have different kinds of voices, different kinds of takes than the average, what you would think of as American Christian evangelical nowadays. So I thought those conversations were hearty and interesting. And then once I got a few conversations under my belt, I started reaching out to people like Julie Mason, people like Charlie Sykes, people that were high profile to me, but whose work I was very, very familiar with and just reached out to them in a earnest way, a genuine way, a personal way, not a transactional, but more of a relational way. And I was so encouraged when folks like that started getting back to me, you know, people that were my go-tos. It's just such a thrill because I, I would be listening to them all the time or reading their material all the time. And the fact that I get to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, is just, is awesome. I was going to say some folks came on that aren't my cup of tea. There's really only one person who in the aftermath, I won't say who it is, but in the aftermath turned out to be a real jerk. But, <laughs> but that was like, I've been, I'm a hundred episodes in. It's like that, that's the one person, you know? And I haven't even been on your show yet. So <laughs> it can't be me. No, but so I've met like now I consider somebody like Jonathan, a friend, you know, we we've talked off air a few times. I'm definitely taking him and his husband out to dinner next time I'm, I'm in his area. So he's super interesting about, about things like cancel culture and, you know, like just a very thoughtful guy. Yeah. 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 Super thoughtful guy. And you can't like, he's a great example of somebody that you just can't put him in a box. Yeah. You know, he's not there. He's thinking on his own. He's thinking on his own. There's no one data point that defines John, you know, same thing with Pete Wayner, like, or Will Salatan, like Lisa Sharon Harper, just so many different people are, once you really are able to have these kinds of conversations with, you, you can't just say, okay, African-American woman, got it. That, that doesn't define Lisa Sharon Harper. That doesn't define Candace Benbo. These are interesting people with interesting stories that will have a point of view about a topic that you're like, wait, 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 I thought you're, you know, and throw out the two data points that you think you know everything you need to know about them. So that's, uh, that's the other thing I love. Uh, one of the many things I love about this medium. So, so I asked you stuff about uh, religion, but I really, we really haven't tackled where you are with respect to politics. How would you locate yourself? So the simplest way I could put it is if I had to distill it down to just a few words, I would say fiscal conservative, social libertarian. But the last seven years have required us to be more specific and to prioritize, to understand what it is we really value. So 
when it comes to being a fiscal conservative, a lot of that is just driven by what I think is healthy for the economy, what I think is healthy for communities and individuals. But at the end of the day, I've had to decide, am I going to vote for a U.S. Congress member that may agree with me on fiscal issues, theoretically, but is, at the end of the day, anti-democracy? Or am I going to vote for somebody that I know for a fact, in our district, California 27, Christy Smith was a state assembly member for two terms, uh, and now she's running for U.S. Congress against Mike Garcia. So I know for a fact that when Christy was in the, the state legislature here in California, three quarters, maybe even 90% of the time, I would disagree with how she ended up on a particular vote. And I told her this when we first met, I told her this, hey, Chrissy, nice to meet you. I voted against you every time. <laughs> she said, oh, sorry to hear that. But that, that's your right. This is democracy. Long story short, she ended up including me in her small business committee. And even though we still disagreed on how she ended up on a lot of issues, I saw that my language, what I talked about in those meetings worked its way into legislation that she was supporting. We're still going to depart at a certain point uh, on how she ends up voting. But the fact that I was included, that my voice was represented. So I, I would sooner vote for her, even though I know she's going to vote a lot of the times against how I would on particular issues. But what is she for? She's for democracy. She knows that January 6th was a historic event. She knows that Trump and Trumpism is a historic threat to our democracy, to this project, to this experiment. And Mike Garcia, he's a Republican, our representative currently, he can't seem to mention anyone who happens to have a D before their name for Democrat without making them sound like the Antichrist themselves. He doesn't realize that he represents a district that is purple, that he won this district by less than one-tenth of one percent, but he makes half the district, literally half the district, feel like they're the enemy. He votes again and again and again the way the insurrectionists on January 6th would have wanted him to have voted. So I don't care what his physical policy is. What his foreign policy is doesn't even matter because we're not going to get to that if we lose our democratic project. Not d democratic as in the party, but this democratic republic or republican dem democracy, however you want to think of it. He, he doesn't see the importance in that. He thinks it's more important to basically lick the boots of Donald Trump on a daily basis to suffice for the radical Trumpist wing of his, his particular party. So that's why I would vote for somebody that maybe isn't a fiscal conservative, that isn't a social libertarian. We would disagree on, on those things, how I might have defined myself you know, as recently as a year and a half ago, because she believes in democracy itself. That's my politics right now. <laughs> well, I mean, that strikes me as uh, where the never Trump Republicans have landed, um, where and you've had a bunch of guests who are from that area. The Lincoln Project leaders, Bulwark is a publication in that arena. Is that where where you feel comfortable right now? I feel most at home right in that area. Yeah, I, I love everything that the dispatch puts out. And that's Jonah Goldberg and David French and Sarah Isger. I love everything that Bulwark put, puts out, especially their members only. Some of the programs that, uh, is it Sarah Longwell, who's a, a sociologist? She, she does those study groups and gets some good qualitative information about what's going on. So yeah. She's, a, she's a big leader of Republicans against Trump. Yeah I, yeah. I talked to her pretty early on in it and she's, she's a smart lady.
Yeah. I would yeah. say my favorite, though, are the guys who split off from the Lincoln Project, uh, Mike Madrid, uh, Ron Steslow. Um, that, what, what Ron is doing with politicology is so on the money. I love the content. I love that they're not just doing content, but they're still activists. They're trying to actually do stuff and make a change and, 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 and introduce ideas and concepts and information into the public domain so that we can be thinking about this and chewing on this. And they also happen to be great people. So I feel most at home in that neighborhood, if you will. I've done nearly 800 interviews at this point. Oh, wow. I think that I've come to understand that the ones that have been most valuable to me are the ones that have made me think differently about some aspect of our politics, or I've learned a lot about some niche that they know about that I did not. Among your guests, has there been anyone who has struck you in similar vein? Well, somebody that comes to mind is Sarah Isger. The program that she does with David French through the dispatch called Advisory Opinions has been so informative for me because I was not familiar with the conservative legal movement. I had been listening to them for about a year prior to the la- the 2020 election. And I was so glad that I learned about it. Just thinking of the current Supreme Court, a lot of folks think it's six conservatives and three liberals. That's not the court that we have. We have they would say a 3-3-3 court <laughs> and institutionalist conservatives and liberals. But but it's even more nuanced than that. But to, to answer your question, I think that that has a huge impact on my thinking and understanding of right now, the judicial branch is a really important one because the legislative branch uh, at the federal level has really, uh, there've been a couple of big things done, like the recent one on uh, gun legislation the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There have been a couple of big things that have happened over the last year, but those are the exceptions to the rules. That legislatively, there's not a lot getting done. So the judicial branch is where a lot of the action is happening. So to understand the conservative legal movement and conservative legal thought has been a huge eye opener for me. Sarah and David and some others have really opened my eyes to that. One concern that I have about the never Trump Republicans I'm very grateful that they're part of the coalition that elected Biden. And I think Biden is a enormous upgrade from Trump on just about every front, even though he's not getting the credit he deserves for running the country pretty decently in in difficult times. But I worry that that category of people looks for an excuse to to move to a different Republican that seems more palatable because they don't have the same manifold personality defects that Trump has, but they're maybe equally dangerous or dangerous in a different way. I put like Ron DeSantis in that category where he's clearly learning the Trump playbook, mimicking his arm movements and language, doing things to cater to a similar crowd. I don't know him well enough, but I, I'm concerned about him in a similar way. And I know that other people who are studying the authoritarian playbook are also concerned about him. And there's this interesting divide in the Republican Party between 
college-educated Republicans and non-college-educated Republicans, where right now DeSantis is running ahead among college-educated, a, a big interesting thing that's happening. What's your take on sort of alternatives for president in the Republican Party to Trump and, and your interest in them, as opposed to reelecting a Democrat? I find that never Trump people, a lot of them are what I would consider true conservatives, not Fox News conservatives. That's a very different thing. I'm talking, or OANN or Newsmax conservatives. I'm talking about Burkean or William F. Buckley or Thomas Sowell type conservatives. Conservatives who were such an important part of sort of a balance, ideological balance in the country before that party got hijacked over yeah. the last bunch of years. Yeah. And there was hijacking happening, even, you know, somebody that I have so much respect for, Pete Weiner, and so many of the, the folks that I really identify with and respect the most now are folks who were part of the George W. Bush administration. But even going back well before then into the mid 90s or early 90s, there were elements of what really metastasized in the era of Trump that well, we I saw Patrick, years and years ago. It seems like Patrick Buchanan, in my mind, he is a Trumpist before Trump. The same kind of racial populism, a lot of those themes get picked up later on. I grieve the day that McCain decided to pick Sarah Palin. If he spoke to her for even a half hour before he made that decision, because he, he, he was the politician that I thought had. Then again, you know, in 2012, I really appreciated the Romney-Ryan ticket. At the same time, I, I thought that Obama was doing an okay job. I didn't hate Obama. I thought I didn't think they needed to be fired. I was I didn't think it was the apocalypse if he got reelected. I just happened to love the Romney Ryan ticket. But a lot of people who ended up voting for Romney Ryan just oh, it's everything's going to end now. You, you know, it was just the end of the world that Obama got reelected. So I I was not one of them. But to answer your, your initial question, any real conservative, any principled conservative looks at DeSantis's record and knows that he is the furthest thing from conservative. He's not pro-business. He's not pro-free expression. He's not, he's not any of the things that would define a real conservative. So maybe, maybe think about Liz Cheney. Well, Liz Cheney's an interesting figure because here's the thing. Again, a lot of folks would look at her voting record the way I looked at Christy Smith's voting record and say, I disagree with her 90% of the time because she is an absolute died in the wool, red as can be, her voting record, right? But when it came down to it, when it came down to what is more important, wearing the team colors or principles, our democracy, she chose to risk the possibility of losing not just her career, but her entire family's legacy over principle because she saw the threat to our actual democracy. So I happen to agree with her on a lot of things. There's a lot of areas I disagree with where she is politically, but at the end of the day, she's shown her principles, her ethics. To me, that's more important. On that biggest issue of the day, she's one of so, so, so few Republicans who've had that, that backbone, almost none, vanishingly few. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I wrote to Mike Garcia, our representative, on the evening of January 6th, and I was really proud of him for not signing on to the amicus brief that came out of uh, Texas, the Texas AG. It was a silly, frivolous lawsuit that he, and Mike was one of the ones who didn't sign on to that amicus brief. And I said, Mike, I see the violence happening. So if you have to make a couple of votes that are against you, 
what you prefer to do. I, I'd rather you not, but I'd understand if you did because threats against people's families were happening at that time. And I couldn't judge him for making those votes. But over time, there were just some absolute softballs for Mike. You know, voting to keep Marjorie Taylor Greene on the education committee. After she, she stalked a, a boy, a, a kid who had just lost a couple dozen of his friends and teachers. Every day she does something appalling. But but I, I, I'm thinking about my, my own representative. I'm like, Mike, this one is an easy one. Nobody's going to threaten you or your family for voting Marjorie Taylor Greene off the damn education committee. They don't even, most of the guys that are threatening you don't even pay attention to that kind of vote. But your, your engaged constituents like me, I do. I see it. So it tells me that you're appealing to only the most radical base of one half of your electorate, not even that half, the entire half of that electorate, because most of them would say, eh, she's not my cup of tea at the very least. You know, he hasn't shown an ounce of integrity when it comes to really representing the district that he's supposed to represent. What else would you like people to know about your podcast that might consider listening to it? Oh, boy. So <laughs> it's a big room. <laughs> There's plenty of room for a lot of people from a number of different perspectives. And I'd love for folks to engage. I'd love for folks to know that we've had a broad array of religious or non-religious perspectives represented, political views represented. The ones that you could probably tell just from this conversation that I guess I'm just not interested in folks who are still on the stop the steal train. They get plenty of airtime on Fox News. They get plenty of airtime on Dan Bongino's show. There's plenty of space for people who are blowing that illusional horn. I'm not giving those folks any space on my program. But folks who have principled disagreements with me on any number of political and, and religious issues, we have robust conversations, you know? So that's. Have you ever felt like killing any of your guests when they. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> only my dad <laughs> but that gets into like greek mythology bullshit so oh sorry am i allowed to curse i'm sorry <laughs> i don't know what sensor is working uh in the depths of the podcast space yeah yeah occasionally my dad would uh just be his annoying self and if you listen to that one of the very first ones we did where i think it was the one called uh a jew from jersey becomes a christian Oi! it's me and my dad talking about when i first became a christian in the middle of it, my mother just kind of interrupts the whole thing. She sees my dad wearing headphones. Are you on the – and my dad just like, yes, he's having this full conversation with my – and she starts talking about, did you pay the credit cards? I'm like, oh my – you, you know, we are recording something here. So at that moment, I thought this might kill the killing each other part. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up leaving it on the recording just because it was – it's actually pretty funny. <laughs> if you could land – uh, the three dream guests that you'd love, who would they be that you haven't had yet? David French, David, I, there's gotta be, there's more than three. David French, David Brooks, Michael Gerson, Wynton Marsalis, Jay Cameron Carter. I met Branford Marsalis's wife once at a conference. That's as close oh, did as you? I can. Yeah. Could you, could you work some angles for me and get, I have Branford on too. I, you know, just get me any Marsalis. <laughs> she was, she was, uh, uh, she'd played basketball for Harvard, I remember. She seemed quite capable in her own right. Oh, man, that's that's awesome. Yeah, now, now you got me thinking of who I'd – like. and listen, it doesn't have to be politics. Or, like we had one of my favorite musicians on 
because I, I read a guy named John Popper, who's the lead singer and harmonica player for Blues Traveler. It's a band that I grew up with. He literally grew up two towns away from where I grew up. Uh, he's about four or five years older than me. So when I read his autobiography, I'm like, oh, he's totally about politics and religion. Let's get him on the program. So that one, uh, Matt Lewis was my co-host. So that was a fun collaboration. If you could get me like Robert Duvall or De Niro or, you know, just so sorry, I'm mentioning a lot of male guests, but uh, yeah, that's true. And, and both of those are, are good friends of mine. So uh, <laughs> they're good friends of yours. I'm doing my De Niro thing. Good friends yeah. of yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the things that we need to be doing is being in conversation with each other across boundaries of politics and religion. You have to be able to do that. We can't only be going to our political corners, even though, you know, in my view, there's a lot to be loathed in certain quarters. That doesn't mean that it, individual people should be treated badly and they should be honored for their variety of opinions. And we should have civil discourse. It's, it's what, it's what no, this it's country true. needs. When you watch the news programs, the folks that are often the most interesting to me are the ones who are the in the minority. Like when Danny Pletka, when she's on Meet the Press, she's interesting because she's surrounded by folks who are all to the left of her politically, or Peggy Noonan. In fact, we had Danny on the program, and but Peggy Noonan is one that I would have uh, on as as one of my dream guests. The folks who are in the minority in terms of their political views, they make the panel more interesting, especially when it's not the crossfire style, when they pursue, you know, adversarial, you know, contentiousness as the point, when they just add nuance to it, like, hey, here's a different perspective. Those are usually the most interesting ones to me. Is there anybody on the left that you want? Oh boy, that's a great question. Yeah, there there are. I'm I'm blanking on names now for for some reason. Coates, Tanahasi. I Coates. think you're close. Yes. He what what a great mind. Um what what a brilliant thinker, what a challenging thinker. Um so I think he's he's definitely one. There are some others that would be I don't know, you know, I think of somebody like Katrina Vandenhuvel, is that how you say her name? Now I'm a little self-conscious because I need to think of, I guess Jen Rubin is kind of a former conservative, but now she sounds so liberal in a lot of her columns. I'd still love to have her on. Well, I I hope you, you get the people that you want and they have a lot of productive conversations. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? We haven't talked about baseball yet. We haven't talked about jazz. I don't know much about jazz, but I I've read a lot and watched a lot of baseball. George so, Will, that's another dream guest. Just to talk about baseball, by the way. <laughs> I think so, he lives. I think he lives near me, uh, just outside of DC, but I don't know him. Wow. Um, so okay. So are you a baseball fan? I'm definitely a baseball fan. What, what, what do you live in the DC area? I live in Vermont in the summer and DC in the rest of the year. So Red Sox, Nationals, like where where are you at? I, I'm a Nationals fan. 2019 was wonderful. When we Nationals. took it all, but I Nobody's grew up, perfect. <laughs> I honestly, I grew up, uh, in Colorado where before there was a baseball team out there. And my dad was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan until they abandoned Brooklyn. And 
I followed the AAA franchise, the Bears, which was an Expos farm team. And they had a lot of great players from that era that went on to the major leagues. And I thought there was something about the minor leagues, which was super interesting. It takes a different kind of fan to follow it at that level. As a little kid, I liked the A's in 72, 73, 74, and the Mets through a bunch of the years later, like 86 Mets. That year I was in college was so exciting to follow them, and I was rooting for them. I didn't have a home team until until D.C. Okay, all right, yeah. No, I'm so I'm a diehard Mets fan because my family's all from Brooklyn, so – you know, they, they were all, the replacement team. Yeah, they all adopted the Mets in the early 60s. And by the time I came around, my first game, my fir- first Mets game, there was a scrimmage before the actual game. And it was between the Mets wives and the cast of Happy Days. <laughs> so what? I got the, I got my picture with the Fonz before my first Mets game. It was great. <laughs> well, Corey, it's been great to talk to you. Um, anything else you want to say? No, it's been it's been really fun hanging out with you. I hope it's not the last time we do it, whether it's, you know, for a recording or just having a beer or something. So it, it'd be fun to do it again. And I'd love to just continue the conversation in any way we can. Okay. That was Corey Nathan. He's at politicsandreligion.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.